Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Yep, it's our special mailbag edition. It's even more special because I'm joined by Andrew Page. Andrew, how are you, sir? Very good, very good on this fine uh, and probably wet Sunday. <laughs> it probably is. According to my little rain forecast machine, it's going to rain for the next 10 days straight at my place. How exciting Oof. is that? Oof. Just miserable. Of course, Andrew Page is the founder and managing director of strawman.com. I am the Motley Fool's chief investment officer here in Australia. You can find us at fool.com.au and therein endeth the ads, although I will share our socials a bit later because they didn't do that on Friday. Uh, but thank you for tuning in for yet another episode of Motley Fool Money. This one, I'm going to say it's our favourite one because we get to answer the questions that you've got for us. Uh, Andrew, I just love talking stocks and investing in business and finance anyway. We'd probably do it even if they didn't let us actually press the record button, but they do. And so because they do, we do. And because we do, you get to hear it. We actually we actually do chat for about half an hour on all this stuff before <laughs> exactly. we hit record anyway. <laughs> Why aren't we just recording afterwards. this? Oh, before we go, before we go. Uh, listeners, I'm just going to say I saved you from a Bitcoin conversation. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave it there. But you're welcome. You're welcome. You were and very patient with me. I'll, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to start with a question from Mike. And I'm going to not start with Mike's question. I'm going to start with a general question. Mm-hmm. How important to you is management? Very. very Put that very, in context very. for me. Look, at the end of the day, you sort of – Go past the price chart, go past the financial statements, go past the latest presentation deck. You know, businesses are just collections of people. <laughs> you know, there might be some machinery and other assets sort of in assets, the mix. But yeah, yeah. It, 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 any, any collective human endeavour is a collection of people. And mm. the, the people at the top set the culture, they make the big decisions, uh, it, it, everything. It is everything. There are there are there's certain businesses that Buffett talks about that even a ham sandwich could run, <laughs> and they're the ones you want to buy because someday a ham sandwich will be running it, mm. um, and that's all very good and true. But they are the exception, and mm. and even for those businesses, you want someone who's very capable at the helm. So it's everything. It, it and the more the longer I've been doing this, particularly mm. as I've sort of moved more to a smaller cap growth type investor, I just it, it's everything, everything. So I asked that in the context, as you well know, of Mike's question, because he says, I would love your thoughts on Berkshire Hathaway on a podcast. Is it still a buy? What happens with Buff- when Buffett and Munger pass? Is it still a market beater, etc.? Mm. Oh, and I love the stoic touch too. I'll explain that in a second. But let's get back to the, uh, the question at hand. Now, it's a question about Berkshire Hathaway broadly, but the Buffett Munger thing I'll start with again, mate, just to mm. drag that out and we'll go back to, to what we think about the company. Warren Buffett's kind of a big deal. Mm. Charlie Munger, not a big deal that he should be, but a really big deal in terms of both Buffett's view, our view of his investment now, his ability to add value and his actual added value to Berkshire Hathaway. Um, Berkshire's been described as Warren Buffett's canvas which is a little bit uh, florid for me, but you get the broad idea. Uh, he's, he's built the business that he wanted to build. He's bought the companies he wanted to buy. He's created the culture he wanted to create. And at some point, and frankly, in the not too distant future, the bloke is 91. At some point, he, either voluntarily or otherwise, won't be at the helm of Berkshire Hathaway anymore. Now, that's been coming for 15 years, at least, and people mm. have asked this question. So there is something about not overestimating it. By the same token, even the kindest actuaries would probably suggest that Buffett's tenure at Berkshire is now somewhere under, I'm going to say, 10 years. Mm. I can't imagine he's going to be a centenarian running the business. So if anyone could, it would be him. Mm. It's a fair question, isn't it? I mean, if, yeah, really if Berkshire is Buffett and Buffett is Berkshire, what is Berkshire without Buffett? Yeah, it's it's such an excellent question. So on one hand, there's a lot of inertia in, in a good way. Well, well, momentum might be the better term in, mm. in those that basket of businesses mm. there or anything. If you've ever followed these guys, you know, they're buying stuff that just very structurally sound set in place, good competitive advantages. They, that, that, that portfolio will continue to move forward in, in a, for a while. And that can always, things can and will change, but they're not going to be overnight changes. So I think, <clears throat> I don't think in terms of the actual business performance, you're going to see too much difference uh, at least in up sort of short, medium term. Uh, beyond that, and more importantly to that, they have. I said before that the the key job of management is is to set the culture, and they have been 
relentless in the kind of people that they hire, mm. not just making sure they're smart people, but very yeah. capable, honest and aligned people. There's, yeah. In fact, I forget his exact saying, you might be able to remember it, but you know, you don't want someone who's smart, but not all those other things. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> because yeah, exactly. if you've got someone who's not honest and, and the rest yeah. of it, but yeah. is super yeah. smart, yeah. they're going to screw you. So, exactly. And, and, exactly. and so the, the, the people that they've sort of uh, tipped to, that are very likely to be the successes uh, yeah. have been within that organization for a long time. They are very well proven. They've yeah. they've drunk the Kool Aid. They know they know the methodology. I, I would think mm-hmm. you will find a very good buying opportunity when when that news sadly hits the market that Buffett's mm-hmm. no longer around, mm-hmm. uh, because there probably will be like just markets being markets. There'll probably be that knee jerk reaction. But I, I wouldn't be too concerned personally. Now, I think you need, like any business, you need to keep an eye on it, make sure that no crazy moves are sort of happening there. But, yeah. but yeah. I, 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 look, I don't, I don't know why I don't own. I own shares indirectly through some ETFs, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, if I was a direct shareholder, I wouldn't be doing anything. So I'm going to share the quote because it's such a good quote. It's too too good not to share. Uh, this is quoting Buffett. He says, "Quote: We look for three things when we hire people. We look for intelligence, we look for initiative or energy, and we look for integrity. And if they don't have the latter," The first two will kill you yes, because if you're going to get someone without integrity, you want them lazy and dumb. <laughs> so true. Isn't that so, oh man, it's so, so quite well, it's such true. a good line. Probably, yeah. probably one of my favourite ones. that doesn't get quoted enough. So thank you for mentioning it. Um, Can I just? Oh, sorry, yeah, just one, one please, more very please. quick thing. I, I need mm, to mention mm. this. That he, he mentions this a lot in his letters. So that generally mm. speaking, because Berkshire has a huge number of businesses out there, yeah. but Buffett's very rarely in contact with them. He, he's picking. Yes, exactly. He's not running. He's he, very deliberately picks people who are excellent managers yeah. and they run it. So their their call to him is really we need a bunch of extra capital because we think this is a good uh, investment mm-hmm. opportunity mm-hmm. or something. So they're really big capital allocation decisions. Yeah. In terms of people running all of these subsidiaries, they are all very competent people in, in their own right. So it's sort of like, you know, Buff- Buffett's, Buffett's importance for the day-to-day mm-hmm. on all those underlying businesses is actually mm-hmm. not, not big at all. Yeah, exactly. He talks about having benign neglect. Yes. <laughs> he buys them, lets them do their thing. All he asks is he send, they send the excess capital to headquarters yep. uh, every year and then if they want some, they ask him and if he thinks it's a worthwhile investment, he'll give them some money to go and buy some stuff, which I think is, is cool. Love it. Um, so the first point, look, the question about post-Buffett and Munger, Berkshire is a weaker business, a less valuable business, post-Buffett and Munger by definition. Only because any, any maths where you add up the sum of the parts and say – all these businesses, all these managers, all this cash, all this, you know, everything that's come to this point. Plus Buffett equals Berkshire. Mm. You take, you, you say minus Buffett and you replace with anybody else. There are some wonderful people at Berkshire, I'm sure. None of us Warren Buffett. So it, it must by definition be worth less than it is worth now without Buffett. I think it's that's just mathematically almost, unless you think there's a, a Buffett equal out there, almost mathematically, you know, um, incontrovertible. Just is. That doesn't necessarily, though, suggest that you shouldn't own the shares. So I own Berkshire Hathaway shares. I would happily buy. Have oh, when did I last buy some shares? I bought a small number, maybe three, four months ago, I think. Um, maybe a little bit longer than actually ago. Maybe in last year. Anyway, um, I, I don't have a. I, by the way, uh, the Motley Fool, and for me personally, uh, my buy, hold, sell stuff doesn't change daily or weekly based on the prevailing share price. It's based on the long-term potential of the business, right? So the fact that I don't know how long ago I bought the shares or what I paid for them, but they're still a buy is pretty clear, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Uh, I think Berkshire is a, a buy for a few reasons. First is, so the question to Mike's question, what happens after after Buffett and Munger? Not much because most of the money, or not most of the money, all of the operations are run by somebody else. Buffett doesn't do that. In fact, he's got a guy, two guys, one guy who runs the insurance operations, another guy who actually runs and has report, who the operating business report to. So he's he's even a further uh, arms length away than he used to be. Mm. Is uh, it second, Greg, Greg Abel and AJ Correct. Yep. Yes, well done, thank you. And he's got two investors, Todd Combs and Ted Weschler, who are now managing thirty-four billion dollars worth of Berkshire's investable capital. Mm. So you can see structurally. That continues. Now, Buffett still makes the calls on the big, big, big cash amounts. If he's got a $100 billion transaction that's mooted, he will be the guy making the call on whether or not they do that deal. So there is something there. And he is the figurehead. He is the guy who sets the culture. He represents the culture. It's huge, huge, huge. And so when he goes, it will be a poorer business for it. But 
the rest of the stuff that actually goes on day to day won't stop, won't even miss a beat. Uh, none, Buffett doesn't, isn't the guy who chooses the, the, the flavour of, you know, chockies that sees candies. He's not the guy choosing the size of the motorhomes or the, the re- relocatable homes they make. He's not the guy, um, you know, spinning the, the, the turbines at the, at the energy plant. Uh, someone else is doing all that stuff. So that's the first thing. I think uh, post-Buffett, I don't expect the returns to be as good as they would be with Buffett because he's not making those big calls. But what I like is a lot of the businesses they have will continue to be profitable and growing for many, 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 many years. So if the incremental upside from here is less than it might have been without Buffett, I think that's un- incontrovertible, as I said, the actual fundamental underpinning, the 95% return, the 95% of the return, happens without him. That's that's why he's built the business he's built and the culture mm-hmm. he's built. So mm-hmm. I'm not worried about it. Um, it's my single largest shareholding by a decent way. I won't be selling any shares. In fact, if he dies and the share prices fall, I'll probably buy some more and take the opportunity because the operating earnings of the business will continue. It's also pretty inexpensive. You don't, as much as I said it's worth less without Buffett, and I think that's true, you're not paying arguably anything at all or if you are, not much for Buffett because if you add up the value of the assets of the business, you're getting it for roughly not much more than you know, 1.2 times book value, something like that. So you're not paying, you know, think about the 100 times revenue business that we talked about on Friday. Mm-hmm. This business, you're getting it, you know, effectively the book value plus a little tiny bit, which probably is represented in the brands they own anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, arguably, the, the, the Buffett premium just isn't in Berkshire anymore in my view. So, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, if it falls meaningfully, I'd happily probably buy some more. No guarantees. It depends on what else I've got and what money I've got, but I'd happily buy some more shares if it, yeah. if it came to that. So yep. not worried about it. Um, is it still a market beater? Mike asks. I think so, but I don't expect to beat the market by a lot. Um, this is a quasi ETF position for me these days. And Buffett himself, so he doesn't expect to beat the S and P by much, just he because can't. it's he so can't. big, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's so he often says he wishes you know he could go back to yes. only managing a yes, hundred million exactly. dollars because it's uh, you've exactly. got so much more opportunities. Yeah. You know, you you, you could buy you could buy you know. Um, you could buy out entirely a ASX small cap company that's going to 10x its profit in the next 10 years and it barely shows up as a blip on the overall results. It's just not going to move the dial. So it's, it's, it is. I think ETF is the way to look at it, but a very, very low risk one because of the, just the sheer cash balance of, of the business, the balance sheet and the, and the earnings the momentum that they have. It's just very safe. Exactly. So that's my, that's my view. Um, I think it'll beat it by a little bit, but it won't beat it by much. And that's completely okay with me. Um, always depends on what price you pay, of course. The last year, Buffett managed to beat the S&P. The year before, he lost to the S&P. That's going to be a more regular uh, switch back and forward, just, again, as Andrew says, because of the, the sheer reality of the investments they make and how they can put that money to work. Mm. Um, there are some benefits you get, in, in internal tax benefits, because Buffett can take that capital and redeploy it inside the business without paying extra tax on it, for example, um, which, ironically, while it mightn't beat the S&P, itself uh, before tax probably beats the average investment after tax because of that. Uh, you big advantage. Sell one to mm. buy the other, you're literally deploying the capital internally. So that is that is huge. So yeah, there is yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's yeah. worth, it's worth just keeping in mind as you as you think about how you expect it to play out or what you expect it to look like as it as it plays out. I think that's probably, that's probably fair to say. Is that, uh, is that I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. Not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a massive market outperformer. I just, I just sleep really, really well knowing I've got those shares. Um, it's very probable I'll pass those shares into my kids. Or if I don't, uh, I don't expect to tend to sell anytime soon. Doesn't mean I won't or I may not or I can't. Uh, but just it's one of those things. I think that's the, the reality. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very good. Um, I was going to to share the the stoic reference. I basically I basically sent a tweet out yesterday. I think it was uh, the day before. Basically, just talking about um, the the reality of of long term investing. And my argument was, and you, you liked my tweet, thank you, mate. Um, that it's so so. I said, quote: the more nervous the market gets, the more it overweights the short term and underweights the long term. That right there is the opportunity for the patient stoic long-term investor. Now, I ranted about that enough on Friday, uh, but that was the, the hence the stoic reference from uh, from Mike's Mike's post. I think that's just true. I think it, it, the opportunity, as you've said yourself, Ram, you, you love those times. I think that's great because, you know, if you if you can be stoic and patient long-term, that's when you get, when the market's looking elsewhere or more importantly, navel-gazing or looking just in front of it, the person who can look out another year, two, three, five years, that's where the opportunity is in my mind. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm 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 just a big fan of stoicism in general as a philosophy. So it, uh, it nice. got my like. <laughs> nice. There we go. Uh, all right. I didn't realize. I, I thought I actually had some useful. I just used the right word. How about that? <laughs> uh, let's get a question from Bryce. Made or a comment from Bryce. Bryce says, "Hi Scott and rant." I'm not sure if that's a mistyping or means it literally. But, no, uh, I'm pretty sure that's deliberate. <laughs> for those wondering, it's Andrew Ram Page, of course. But uh, but uh, some have mentioned in the past that maybe it should be Rant Page, which is probably right. <laughs> uh, Bryce, I've been a listener of your podcast since my favorite. Uh, Sorry, since my previous favourite finance podcast hosts unfairly grilled Scott in an interview. Since listening to your podcast, I've never looked back. I have no comment on that, Bryce. Which was that? Wait, 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 wait. I need need to know more information about that. Given given Bryce has thrown them under the bus, I won't won't mention them for his sake and for mine. Uh, Fair to say, mate, when you work for The Motley Fool, uh, a podcast host tends to take uh, exception at our marketing style and I... I'm sure there are some people listening who absolutely take similar exceptions to it. Uh, let's just say that in some of those times have, where I've been a, a guest on a podcast, I've been asked pointedly about our, our marketing. Uh, so, uh, and look, I actually don't. I don't mind it as, as much as it's. Um, I think some people make. I think some people put the cart before the horse on that one, and uh, I don't love our marketing either. I've said that, and I actually am pleased that I can say that without getting fired. Um, but it's also super effective. And I've said before that I think we are helping more people because of it than without it. Doesn't make it great, not necessarily. Uh, and people like to ask me about it and that's fine. I'm actually really happy to talk about it uh, in both those contexts. I don't love it, but I also understand that it's helped us be bigger than we would have otherwise been and hopefully help more people than we otherwise might have. And that's a bit of a deal with the devil and that's just kind of where we find ourselves and that's fine. It's kind of uh, funny. Anyway. Sorry, I interrupted, but it is, it is kind of, it. we've talked about this offline before where it's sort of, Imagine, imagine the marketing message that says, "Hey, invest in the share market. It's really scary. Uh, you'll, you'll probably see your net worth drop by fifty percent at least a couple of times this decade. Yeah, but it's right. okay. Overall, long term, you might compound it maybe ten percent per annum. Like, where, where do I sign? You know, like that's yes, that yeah. is mate, like it's a really it's hard not, message. It's not even sell. that. It's not even that diametrically opposed, though, mate. So I've I don't talk about our marketing for, for too long, but but for the fun of it, um, I've tried to write emails before, as you well know, saying hi. We're the Motley Fool. We're good guys. We try our best. Uh, we think we're trustworthy and we're beating the market. Why, why don't you join us? Zero, and the silence zero response. Deafening, deafening yeah. right? Yeah. And then we say, hey, great stock being released this Thursday. Limited time offer. Uh, this price is only available till Thursday night. Join up now to get advantage, take advantage of it, right? Mm. And, and people do. And other people say, well, you shouldn't be so, you know, and, and I'm not even disagreeing with them, right? I wish. In a, like, there are... I don't know, 4 million individual investors in Australia, including retail investors and superannuals and self-managed super funds, that we can't get a decent chunk of those people to pay us cents on the dollar for a market-beating investment advice drives me bananas. Mm. You know, there are some really dodgy guys out there who charge many, many, many thousands of dollars for questionable slash market losing, market lagging advice. Mm. We, we charge really small amounts of money. It's worth it. Even if we suck, it's worth paying 100 bucks to give us a go because- if we don't suck, then you're going to make a multiple of that, right? Anyway, yeah. long story short, I, I can't just say we're good value. We, we're, I think we're pretty trustworthy. We beat the market. Give us a go. It doesn't work. No one buys the newsletter. And then people yeah. say, why did you do that? Because no one buys the newsletter. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's And yeah. again, is it an excuse? Yes, absolutely. Uh, do I love all of our marketing headlines? No. What I do love, by the way, a quick plug for our marketing team because they are working really hard to try to find the right path through that. Um, they're trying to tone down some of that stuff or try and make sure we can support it more accurately. We won't necessarily get it right uh, and there are commercial realities. But, um, yeah, the guys are doing their best, and I, which I really appreciate from an investing perspective uh, and from a, from, a, from a podcast host grilling perspective, as Bryce mentioned. All right, wait, let's leave it. I'm with that. I'm with it. Yeah, let's do that. A question, Bryce says, for the podcast machine. Love it. Thank you, Bryce. I have some investments that I bought early on in my investment journey. And from my valuations, there is still some upside to be realized. However, I have since found a personal investing philosophy that works for me in which these older investments don't fit my criteria. I was wondering, should I A, sell the older companies and redeploy the capital into my new investing style or B, just ride them out until they reach my perception of fair value or my thesis breaks? Thanks in advance and full on. And that's from Bryce. I love this question, mate. It's a really cool one because it talks the evolution of of investing. We've all evolved as investors. You and I certainly have. Bryce has. And it's going to happen. So what do you do when you find yourself... 
left with something you think, well, I bought it for this reason and I still think that reason is valid, but uh, as an investor now, I kind of moved on to something else. I think this is more useful for me. Mm. So I kind of got this weird, you know, uh, kind of split kind of um, investment approach going. What, what, what do I do? What, what, what yeah. should Bryce think about? You can't give him personal advice as always, but what yeah, should yeah. Bryce think about doing? Well, I, I think it's it's very natural for that to happen. I mean, I've I've gone. I started off with just only blue chips, <laughs> dividend payers, and all of that. It just made a lot of sense. And then I've, just, I've transitioned to a completely different path over a, you know a twenty year period. It's been a journey, mm. and I'm sure it'll continue to evolve. So that's that's perfectly normal. I think the first thing to realize is is this evolution moving you in a direction that's the right direction. So in, in the sense that you know this this approach that you're preferring these days actually a valid uh, mm, approach because, mm, you know, mm. we can all trick ourselves. Um, uh, and and that is, it is uh, sympathetic to your own natural quirks and, mm. and personality and all of that kind of stuff. But if that is the case, um, I I think that you, you need to always look at your investments on an individual basis and with always mm. the, the idea of opportunity cost at the front of mind. So these other investments may still be totally valid, but if you've now got an approach that you feel is vastly superior and an application of that approach leaves you with a, a more attractive risk reward opportunity set, mm. then you've, that's the contrast you've got to play here. It's like no one's saying that this, this other stuff you bought still might have some value. Maybe they do. Um, mm. and, and even though it's not your particular bag right now, it's still perfectly valid in holding it, but it's not if there's something that's sort of like of an equal kind of risk but with a far better return outcome, you're, you're actually you're costing yourself there in terms of whenever that money is locked up in these other investments, by definition, it can't be anywhere else. So I would sort of look at it on a case-by-case -case basis and saying, mm. for whatever reason I bought these, this is how I'm sort of carving things up now and I think that this is a sensible approach. I'm not just doing because it it's. The, I'm not saying this is Bryce at all, but you know, I'm not doing this because it's the flavor of the month, and everyone's decided that this is the type of stuff. I'm just. This is genuinely the way I like to invest, mm -hmm. and, I, and within that, I've got opportunities that are just you know materially uh, 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 superior to what else is there. Then I would make the switch. I would make the switch because you, you're dragging your returns lower by keeping it in something that, by your own calculus, isn't as attractive. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm going to add a couple of nuance, mate, just, just for fun. And I, don't even, I think you're dead right, right? You, you put your money in the best ideas outright. Mm -hmm. A couple of thoughts for Bryce uh, and others is as you're making the transition, uh, just make sure your new strategy is time-tested enough. And all, all I mean by that is just, you know, um, if I'd have gone, if I'd have been a growth investor and then I went, oh, you know, I'm going to be a value investor. The last three months will convince me that value investing is obviously now the way to go because look how well I've done. And that's and maybe maybe value investing does remain the way to go, or maybe growth comes back. I'm not sure. That's almost my point. Mm. So, um, just if it works for you, that's great. And and you should, as Andrew has said many many times, you can borrow an idea, you can't borrow a conviction. If you've got more conviction in the new strategy, then go for it. There's something to me that kind of is reminding me a little bit of just being half. Um, Half thoughtful, you get to have a you get to have a foot in both camps to some degree in this one, right? So if mm. you're if you're still in that in that transition, if you're still making the transition, there's there's kind of some inherent diversification in that opportunity to kind of say I've got, I've got this new strategy, but I've got a couple of stocks in the old strategy that you know are still going there, and I still think they're cheap enough to hold. There's some you know is is it return maximizing? Maybe or maybe not, depending on whether the new strategy is right. But it's also there's just some value in kind of maybe you want to you don't want to you don't want to get caught in the middle of no man's land. But there is some value in maybe having a bid in in both. So there's something there's some value there. Um, as Andrew says though, I think uh, the A and B you present, Bryce. The answer is probably C, and it's just simply a matter of depending on where where you can better invest the money. If if you've got shares that are selling for eighty cents, you think are worth a dollar, and you can find some other shares for fifty cents that are worth a dollar then it makes no sense to hold the 80 cent shares, no matter whether it's your current style or your new style. So it, it, even if they're all in your new style and you could be asking, well, I've got an idea over there that's better than the ones I currently hold, what should I do? The answer is almost going to be mathematically at least, mm. go and take the new ideas if they're better. If, they're, if, they're a, if there's a longer term, higher return opportunity, that's always the best. Whether it's old new strategy, whether it's new new strategy, whether it's whatever it is, if there's a, if there's a better bargain out there, you're almost better to do it. Now, there's tax implications, of course, is the other thing. Uh, and like I guess said, you, you could also be wrong. So just, just be mindful of that. I often say I tend to be slow to sell. Uh, one of the reasons is because, and I've suddenly said this to me years ago, it's kind of a, it's kind of, 
not 100% right all the time, but just the idea of if, you, if you're buying to sell, sorry, if you're selling to buy, you've got to be right twice. You've got to be right that the business is worth selling now and the one you're buying is better than the one you've got now. So it kind of compounds the, the degree of difficulty. Um, so I would proceed slowly, but I think Andrew is dead right in terms of the, the, the right framework to think about what you do with those shares. Mm. Mm. Anything else on that, mate? Uh, I <laughs> no, I think it's, it's – I'm, I'm struggling here because I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. I will say – Go on, um, go there. Go. That's Google, what we do here. Google, if you really want to go to nerd out a bit on this stuff, mm, mm. Google the Kelly criterion. It, it was mm. – um, it's a mathematical formulation for bet sizing. Mm. <laughs> you know, they, they, they <laughs> take that with a grain of salt in that description. But it's a really great way of thinking about – capital allocation and the weightings of mm. your position. Yeah. So, you know, when it's it's not often that you come across something where you're very, very high conviction and the expected value is is quite attractive. And what the Kelly criterion says without getting into the maths <laughs> is that you need to bet big on those, you know. And, and, in fact, even though this is all probabilistic kind of stuff, even when it goes wrong, that's still usually the approach to take because it just outs over time. So it does, it does all kind of examples with dice and roulette wheels and all of this kind of, and it's different in the share market because I don't know what the expected value. I can't, I can't True. accurately. With, yeah, 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 that's with right. a coin and a dice, I yeah. can know exactly what the odds of rolling a two. I don't exactly know what the odds that BHP is going to be up 30%. So so there, there are nuances in it, but I, I just, yeah, I don't, it's why I hesitated at the start because I don't want to get into this, but Google it and, and you'll find, I think it sort of gets a little bit to this, this thinking here in terms of, 2,000-odd stocks on the ASX, which ones am I going to buy? I need to be highly, highly selective. But then once you get past that, you also want to have a very good think about how you weight them in your portfolio. I've got some stocks in my portfolio, I confess to you off air, which just have really, I'd be embarrassed to admit to people because, because you know, they're not usually my bag and they're hard to sort of articulate the thesis for. But you you can still perfectly rationally do that with with the appropriate sizing. And it's just, it's an added layer of depth and I know it gets, it's nerding out a little bit, but Google it, have a read around. I think you'll find, I think a lot of our listeners will find it valuable. I like it, mate. I like it a lot. Uh, let's move to a question from Aaron who says, Hi, Scott and Andrew, long time listener. I think I started about episode 50 many years ago and second time question asker for the podcast. Welcome back. Uh, like Scott, I'm a super fan of the Vanguard index chart. This has even helped me teach my children about investing for their future. And they both have trust accounts under my name, which they regularly add to from birthday and Christmas money, etc. And are loving seeing this grow, he says in brackets, and drop too. I have a question relating to this chart. I would like to know if Scott or Andrew knows of any application in which you could plot your capital investments into the market, i.e. the cost of your portfolio, and also show what the market value of this portfolio would be across various points in time. This is somewhat similar to what Andrew has on Strawman member pages. Yes, I'm a member, he says. Also, share advisor and extreme opportunities too, for full disclosure. Yes, I could plot it into Excel, but I could spend several hours doing something else instead. What I'm aiming to do is to have a visual representation of how my total portfolio is performing against how much capital I've invested and to really see and teach to the youngsters the benefits of compounding over time. Thanks in advance for the good which you both, uh, good in which you both go to, assisting us all to have a better financial future. Our pleasure, Aaron, and it's a really good question. What do you know, mate? Is there a way to do this to save Aaron hours of time in Excel? Yeah, I'm sure there there are stuff out there. I mean, I also find it a pretty can be pretty valuable just doing Excel. I know there are smarter ways than that, but there's something about Excel which gives you full control and customization, and also building it yourself gives you a very the that that alone as the exercise forces you to think things through. So actually, I'm. I don't necessarily know you would need to go to something more uh, advanced. Mm. Um, but I'm, I, I like that idea of what gets measured gets done, yeah, you know? That's true. And And I, I feel as though it's, it, is, it is a very worthwhile exercise. Where I have changed over the years is I've fl- done that kind of stuff, but I've flipped the focus. So I used to be very backwards looking. This is mm. how much I invested. This is what my returns are, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all really important, you know, uh, it is. But I've tried to flip it around and it's more about, 
this is what I hold mm. versus my conviction on that versus my potential upside on that. So it's mm. kind of like mm. whether it's up 50% down 100, whatever it is, I don't, I don't care because all that matters is what, how my capital performs going forward. Yeah, and I've, yeah. I've, for me, I have found that so, so super valuable because when you always driving by looking in the rear vision mirror, it mm. just, you know, you're more inclined to sell something because it's down when it actually could be the best time to buy. Sometimes you sell it because, oh, it's got a really good profit. I want to lock it in. It's just, it's not the right contrast. The right contrast mm-hmm. isn't what has it done. Although again, it's always important to measure and have a, have a read on that. It's about where to from here. And so that's, that's the only sort of, I, I wouldn't change anything, Aaron. Um, keep doing what you're doing, but, but also try and, try and um, add to your spreadsheet where it's also looking forward. So next to all of those stocks, put, put next to a, a valuation that you think is reasonable versus the current price. Then you can do a sort by how, which one's representing the biggest um, uh, difference mm. between what I think is mm. fair and what mm. it's actually trading at. That's, that's probably a good argument there, a good, a good signal there in terms of how you should weight it and what you should buy next. So that, that's, that's all I'd say. Are you aware of, I mean, there's, there's more and more stuff out there all the time in terms of tools that, that will help you with this. Are you aware of any? Mate, I'm not. I think what um, – I understand what he's trying to do is it's trying to basically create a way to show not just the percentage gains but the dollar values over time to kind of make the point to the kids. Not so much to make something worth buying or selling, just kind of make the point about here's what here's the compound value over time of that dollar, oh, $10, dollars $100, $1,000 we invest. Yep. I think that's that's super useful. Um, there used to be a valid – I can't find it anymore. I wonder if it's been taken down. A The um, ASX used to publish – uh, a, a in dividend included index at the end of each month. I actually yeah. can't find it at the moment. I think they it make it so down. hard to find. I don't know why they don't. It's- you know why? Because they can sell it to people like us for a fee instead. Oh, just- um, so yes, it's. It, it, I don't know that it's available anymore. So I am trying desperately trying to find it, but I, can't. I think it was called the Dividend Opportunities Index or something. Some crazy something like name that? like that. Uh, I think you actually can possibly find it through Yahoo Finance too by using the dividend-adjusted chart, the very right-hand side. Anyway, long story short, uh, no, I don't know. I wish it was possible. Um, I got to say, so for what it's worth, I I understand the intent. Uh, I think that it's probably... To your point, Andrew, I'm not sure whether you get the value out of it you want, the time you want to put in, unless you're just that way inclined, in which case, as an just go and do the work. Uh, just, just for your own sake, Aaron, if, that, if that's useful. Um, some, some of us just love Excel for the, for the Pretty much, bit. exactly. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. a really embarrassing guilty, thing to admit. Guilty as charged, but, yeah. yeah. Um, so, mate, I, I don't know. Um, I think, look, if you just put the amounts in as you're investing them and then the current values, that'll do part of the job, but you want it over time, right? So you've got to be able to capture... At points in time, what that portfolio is worth? The answer is no. Um, something like ShareSite, you can do. I think Andrew's got a deal with ShareSite. Um, you can do it, and it's cost you money, but you can see over time the value of their portfolio grow. Um, that's hard to beat. Depending on the amount of money you've got, mate, and the kids have got, uh, you can do it. You can have a free account under a certain number of positions. You can do it yourself. You can have multiple portfolios, depending on how much you pay. Uh, so you might find it actually worthwhile in dollar terms, frankly, for tax and other things. But also, it may just be worth your investment so you can show them what that chart looks like. But may, no, honestly, I, d- I don't have a good answer for you. Mm. Which I, 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 I wasn't going to mention it because I feel as though it's too spooky, but yeah, no, we, we've got a referral. I use it. I don't get paid for it. it. <laughs> yeah, I just, it really, genuinely it is. It's just, yeah, it just yeah. sort of, like, it connects to my broking account too. So whenever yeah, I trade yeah. something, it autom- I don't yes, have to do yeah. anything. And then I can yeah. look at my return over various time frames, different portfolios. Yeah. It's, just, it's just super easy. And it shows you that chart. And you can mm-hmm. you can compare it against any number of benchmarks. It's just it's really cool, you know. But it's not cheap either. I think it's like thirty bucks a month or something like that. So yeah, but it's but really for- it's really expensive. But it's it's I, I've I've never considered not having it for what it's worth. I don't get paid a cent for from ShareSite. Uh, we have partnered with them a couple of times. Uh, completely. Um, uh, I say pro bono, but we, we, we shared some, you know, we sent email to their li- our list, they sent email to their list saying, hey, try these guys because um, we like them and we think they're good and they, they're the same with us. So it, it works out nicely. But yeah. Yeah. So I better give the plug. Strawman forward slash blog. You'll find an article there about <laughs> share site. There's a discount offer. So yeah. Now that's brookie. No, take, take the discount offer. Is there? Take <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, if you, look, I'm just saying if you're going to do it, do it totally. to us. Yeah. And I get some money for it too. So everyone's yep. happy. Absolutely. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Uh, One from Duncan, mate. Hi, Scott and Andrew. As a retail investor, 
Why is using Morningstar quantitative stock valuation a bad idea? Overdoing the calculations myself. The stock doesn't matter, but as an example, Whisper. Morningstar has a one-star value of $6.96, a five-star value of $1.86. As long as I buy as close as possible to the five-star value, can't I save myself a lot of time? Thanks for so much for your time. And that's from Duncan. Mm. What do you reckon, mate? Outsource it to Morningstar or do it yourself? Do it yourself. Every Why? day, do it yourself. So I'm not, this isn't against Morningstar at all, but they, they, they've got these models, right? Mm-hmm. And it takes in a bunch of inputs and expects how to evaluate. It's quantitative in the sense that there's not mm-hmm. a there's not a uh, team of analysts there doing yeah. it. It's just it's a mathematical model, and there'll be some real validity to to it. I'm sure. Otherwise, they they wouldn't do it. Yeah. But but it's the exceptions to the rule that are the really interesting thing. That if mm-hmm. here's the here's the better way of explaining it. If there was a, a uber reliable quantitative method that was out there, we'd all just yeah. use it. There wouldn't there wouldn't be an industry, you know. So it's yeah, kind of yeah. uh, uh, all of the investments, a lot of the investments that I hold just look awful through that mm-hmm. model, mm-hmm. and that's because the model wasn't built for the kind of stocks, that, the earlier stage growth stocks. You know, yeah. it, was, it was built yeah. for different. So so on, it's just useless uh, on that. But for for other companies, it's it's probably quite good. So again, you you have to to answer the question, you have to have a good understanding of the model and the mm. theoretical backing of that, mm. and where it's most applicable. And if you agree with the theory and you and you think that the company that it's being applied to is a good fit for that model, then by all means, yeah, take take take, take it with that. But you'll find so much more uh, that's not in the model that's important. We were talking before about the the the, the super super importance of management. Mm, How do you put mm. that into a quantitative model? Yeah, yeah. You know, there is companies. I, I won't mention it, but I mentioned to you before one unusual company that I bought. But God, it looks awful through any quantitative model. It's going through this massive restructure. <laughs> just the back, the, looking backwards, yeah. is, it's meaningless. Yeah. It doesn't tell you anything yeah. about what the business is doing, what strategy it's pursuing, what next few years are going to look like. It's it's completely right. useless. So that's, yep. I, I would be very careful with that. I look, I think they're interesting to to look at, but I I I think if you really want an edge, mm. you you do it yourself. Yeah, I agree. Um, I like Morningstar. Uh, we know a couple of the guys there. They're good guys. They're trying to do the right thing. Uh, there are plenty of shysters in our industry. Um, I don't think the full straw man or Morningstar are in that category, so I like them a lot. And, yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. And, they're, and they're great guys. When it comes to this, I think Andrew's made the really good points, Duncan, so I'm going to repeat a couple and then try and take my own spin on it. The first is, uh, if, it was already, if it was that easy, I wanted to do it. So by definition, it mustn't be that easy. Um, secondly, there's a... There's a you got to be a little bit careful. There's a bit of a trap in trying to buy, as you say, close to the five-star value as possible. So I'll give you, I'll just repeat the number. So Whisper shares, when you sent this through, was $3.60 each. The one-star value of $7. The five-star value is $1.86. Now, firstly, that's a dramatically large gap in valuation and probably justifiably, right? Because the future is really, really, really broad for Whisper. It could be a absolutely gun fantastic business worth $100 a share or it could go broke and be worth nothing. Neither is going to happen, by the way, but just for the fun of, you know, there's a massive range of outcomes. You want to buy as close to the five-star value as possible. Absolutely, everyone does. Everyone wants the cheapest price they can possibly get. But you might find, and I can't think of a really good example right now, mate, but have a think for me while I'm talking, that yes, we want to buy Whisper as close to $1.06 as possible because we always want to buy the cheapest company we can. However, Paying up for value is also worthwhile. Paying up for quality is also worthwhile. So if I'm waiting, actually, I'll give you my own example. I used this last week, the week before, zero, right? Shares went from 40 to 12-ish. And I said to the guys, when it gets to 10, that's what we'll recommend it to our members. Guess what? If it did, it wasn't for very long. We didn't have a chance to recommend it at 10. And now it's 100 and something. Now, I wanted to buy it as close to, in this case, the five-star value as possible. Now, it wasn't Morningstar's value, but I'm using the terminology of your question. I missed it because I was waiting for too cheap a price and I got smashed in terms of the missed opportunity cost. So the other thing about those valuations, it tends to lead you towards the, you know, at what price is it cheap enough to be really great and you might miss it. So at 360, I don't know, maybe it's probably their three-star value from the look of it or somewhere in between. Would I, if someone offered me for $1.90, of course I'd buy it. But if this is going to be a $25 stock in five years' time, do I want to miss it 360 because I'm waiting for 186? Possibly. And so generally, when it comes to quantitative valuations, the multi-field we don't publish, I think for any of our services anymore, um, 
our intrinsic value or our applied estimate or our valuation estimate for any of our companies. Not because we don't believe that we should think, go through the motions, as Andrew said, of working out your own valuation, because it becomes its own, um, uh, it becomes its own anchor. We very, very, the very first recommendation we made at the Motley Fool, we said for the company, don't pay more than 40 cents for this share, right? And we were trying to minimise people going over the top, paying too much just out of ill discipline. And for six months after that, as the price rose, people were kept saying, but it's more than that price. Should I, I shouldn't buy it anymore, right? And we kept saying, no, no, the business has improved. It's worth more now. It's okay to pay some more for that. But it was, this, this, it was an anchor. It was an absolute anchor for so many members for so long uh, that we realised the error of our ways. So... If you think Morningstar's valuation is absolutely spot on, then sure. But how do you know their valuation is spot on unless you do the work yourself? And then Can we I, get up, go around in circles. I've just, I've just brought up uh, Comsec, uh, which has the Morningstar quantitative um, okay. data. Nice. And I, I brought it up for Whisper. Nice. So it's three-star value at the moment. Okay. But it's also got a bit of information underneath that it. it says, was fairly valued on the 2nd of August 2021. So in other mm-hmm. words, it would have, I presume, had at a much higher valuation rating. Okay. Well... On the second of August, twenty twenty one, it was at two sixty four, and now it's at one fifty. Right now, that's a reasonably short time frame. I don't want to, you know, these these mm-hmm. things happen. But again, it's important to sort of point that out. Is is that well, actually, if, had you been following this blindly, and I know the, the listener's not saying just to follow it blindly, but if had you, had you been doing it and and bought it when this model said this was this was the best value that we've 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 seen in, in over the last year, well, it's actually, <laughs> now it's 30, 40% cheaper. Mm-hmm. So take it with a grain of salt. I, I had a conversation yesterday with a friend of mine who, who runs a fund and mm-hmm. we were talking about a company and he said, oh, so many of the analysts misunderstand it. And mm-hmm. when he had a look at some of their reports, they'd mixed up some basic things as reporting US dollars as AU dollars. Right. They, they had fundamentally misunderstood the difference between the first half revenue, like revenue and full year, like rookie kind of stuff. But this mm, is from mm. a big broking research house, big shiny report put out there. It's like no one reads it. No one reads the yeah, damn right. thing. But if you know the business well and you're reading it, it's like this is this is fundamentally flawed on core assumptions. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just, it was kind – I was pretty shocked. I mean, everyone's yeah. got different skill sets and rah, 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 and some, some guys – good and some girls is less good or whatever it happens mm, to be mm, but it, but it just sort of i think we we put a lot of stock in in what the so-called professionals do yep. when i would i would i would say trust yourself more than more than a lot of these people because they they they're human and they are as much as anyone i think it's a good it's a good uh, bit of information but don't don't rely on it do, do your own work i, I it sounds I, I, it's off-putting because it, this is hard work and it will put a lot of people off. But, hey, that's the game you're in. Just go buy an ETF and live your life, right? No one's saying you have to do it. But if you are going to do it, mm-hmm. I'm feeling a little bit blunt here, <laughs> do the work, right? Yeah, exactly. And if you don't do the work, don't be surprised when the results are subpar. Yep, I like it. Um, I, I'm going to add one thing, mate, only because I don't want to come across as negative either towards Mornings or other people in general. When you, we say don't trust them to do your own work, um, the reality is there are humans behind all of the pieces of work. And so you will make your own mistakes like that analyst did with the AU oh, yeah, dollars sure. and US dollars. And so will they. The, the, I think the mistake is in assuming that here's – the, here's the problem. When someone says it's worth $1.86 or the five-star value is $1.86, we anchor straight to it. Oh, good, I've got, I've got an absolute precise number. Mm. When I say, oh, I'm not sure, it's somewhere, you know, $1.52, $1.50, somewhere like that, it makes me sound like I'm either um, less smart, less convinced – uh, when really the reality is, as Andrew and I've said before, you're not going to be, you can't, you can't, I mean, you, they've, got, they've chosen to pick a number, which is fine. But they would say themselves, I'm almost certain, because they are good people. That's, a, that's, a, that's the midpoint of a range of outcomes that we think is about right. Mm. Not that is the absolute guaranteed price it's absolutely worth. They may not, by the way. If they, if they wouldn't say that, then I'd, my apologies putting words in their mouth. Um, but the, Andrew's point is that these things are built by people who assume some uh, relationships with the data to come up with a value. Yeah. And that, that relationship might be right, it might be completely wrong, or it might be right sometimes or wrong other times. You owe it to yourself, I think, to understand the thinking. And that's why when it comes to straw man with the the the, uh, the straws that, that Andrew's people do, or the Motley Fool, we give you our recommendations. We, we spell it out and say, this is how we think about the company. This is what we think the upsides are. This is what we think the risks are. You should know that. And if you believe us, or if you, if you think there's a good starting point, either buy the shares or go and do some more research on this basis. Mm. Rather than saying... 
The only number you need to know is is a evaluation. Again, I'm really I want to be really really careful. I like the Morningstar guys a lot. We like their business. They're, they're smart, capable people trying their best. This is not a slant on them at all. Anyone who says this is what it's worth, you should say based on what. What is that? What you know? What is that? Gar- you know, garbage you know, in, garbage out is the old saying. Or, or or at least find out how accurate they are. Now, if they if they're right 95 percent of the time, then ignore everything I just said. The Motley Fool, we're right about 60% of the time when it comes to our recommendations. You should know that. I've said that, say that to our members all the time. I said that on this podcast lots of times. We, you know, that's the, it, that's the reality. Dude, right? If you're right we're 95% of the time, you're probably investing with Bernie Madoff, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, but, no one but, does yeah. that. Yeah. So, so my point is just, you know, be, be mindful that people are always wrong. Uh, if you want to, you know, lock into to a, to a mechanical style of investing, then maybe okay, or maybe as Andrew says, buy an ETF. I would just All say, right, I just say quickly on on Whisper, yes. like these, the kind of in my wheelhouse, these these kinds of companies. Mm-hmm. Looked at it before. I mean, here you've got a business. They just reported recently twenty seven percent growth over the pre- previous period in in revenue. Mm. I mean, they've compounded their recurring revenue by thirty percent per year over the last three years. Record results, mm. you know, and the, and the business is trading on three times its recurring revenue. Mm. So so. What you can say about, and I'm just using this as an example, like you, you can go way, way into the weeds and, mm. and you know, the more you do, the better the better it is. But even at a high level, you could really kind of say, look, if this kind of growth is maintained and there's any kind of cost discipline, this thing's dirt cheap. Mm. Now, is it worth X dollars or Y? Again, you can, you, can, you can land on some kind of false specificity there. But the real question I would say is if you're investing in this business or arming and arming on, is it can they maintain mm. any kind of that 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 growth? Mm. Um, can do, do the do the unit economics and that look attractive <laughs> at, at maturity? You know, is this is this something that's just going to be very strong top line growth, but always losing money? I mean, if mm. you if you can get any kind of they're the big questions. You get any kind of answers on that? This thing's cheap, ten or twenty percent either side of it. Yeah. If if you if you feel as though growth is going to stall or costs are going to have a massive increase. Uh, then it's all out. It's all. It's all over. You know, well, not over, but I mean, you, you, you're probably yeah. going to suffer a big downside. Keep it. Find. You want to find. I think with investing, there's ten different million ratios you can look at and <laughs> things and whatever. But try and find what are the big things that matter, mm. and then that will that will guide your journey of discovery. <laughs> so okay, this is what I need to see. How's yep. that going to happen? And you just keep yep. going down a level, down a level, and down a level. So I hope, I, hopefully that helps in the case of, of Whisper. But yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be relying purely on just a, a morning star, five star rating, or otherwise. Let's go to a question from Robert, mate. Hi, Scott and Rampage says Robert. I have been listening now for a couple of years, and I greatly enjoy the ramblings. Oh, that's a bit harsh. That come out of the old podcast machine. Thank you for your sharing your experiences <laughs> and for entertaining us. Our pleasure, Robert. I have a question around trading and in particular the size of the trades. While it's not an issue for me, I'm a small fish in a very big pond, I wonder why the size of trades that I see on Comsec are often smaller parcels. Surely there are big financial behemoths and wealthy investors that want to make massive trades, but how do they do it? I assume they break their trades into smaller parcels, but is there some rule of thumb or best practice they apply to determine size? I imagine it scales according to the volume of trade, but I wonder how it's done. Or... Am I completely crazy? And all people do what Andrew says, buy or sell at market for any parcel. Uh, thanks again for your insight. And that's from Robert. Over to you, sir. Uh, so all, all these funny little trades you see are bots generally. Um, they're, they're doing all kinds of tricky little things, trying to like skim, you mm-hmm. know, fractions of a cent here and there and do that in very large numbers. So mm-hmm. ignore them. I don't, I don't, they, don't, they don't really mean anything. Yeah. Um, it's for the... For the big players, mm-hmm. they have a couple of options. So let's say I, I want to buy, let's stick with Whisper for the sake of example, $127 million market cap company. So far today, we're only almost two hours into trade. It's on 293 trades, about 300 grand worth of dollars. So if I was a, if I was a big fund manager, I wanted to buy $10 million of this today. I could, I just wipe out all the sell orders. Couldn't do it. <laughs> so usually I'll do that as what's called a block trade or I'll find, mm-hmm. I'll do it outside of the market. So you don't remember, I can buy your sales, mm-hmm. buy your shares mm-hmm. today, Scott, never having to touch the market. We can just do an yeah. off-market transfer. That's right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you can too with anyone. You can sell, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's a uh, you know, um, voluntary act of capitalism between two individuals, <laughs> as the saying goes. So so oh, okay. what they will do is generally speaking, they'll say, they'll, they'll ring up their broker and say, hey, I really want to buy this parcel of shares. They'll ring around to all the holders and say, look, do you want to do this big trade? And they'll they'll just put it through off market. 
And there's these other things called dark pools, which is kind of like a market, but except you don't know who on the other side of the party is. So people like mm. to keep a bit of anonymity, just hold their chest, their cards close to their chest. And there's other there's other ways of doing it like that. So the really big trades you often actually won't see go through market. And if it's on the edge, you'll usually find the the broker will just break it. And you've got it. Our client's given us a mandate to dispose of or acquire mm. X dollars worth of stock. So I just want you to buy in at at adding in increments over the next week or two mm-hmm. to fill our position and they'll, they'll, they'll hammer away and get the best price that they can. Uh, it's all meaningless. It doesn't really make yep. much difference. A good question though. Buffett said before it can, it can take him months to build positions sometimes in the companies that they want to own meaningful, meaningful shares of because they do exactly buy bits and bits at a time in the market semi-regularly. Um, it, it is useless as you say, mate. Uh, the, the one thing that the big guys will try to do though is try and avoid flagging their interest because if, if the sellers know there's a big buyer out there who wants a stock, what do you do? Well, you pull your volumes out and you wait till the price goes up and you kind of, you play, you know, they're desperate, you don't want to sell so you can take advantage of it. Mm. If there's only little parcels going through regularly, there's no flagging to the market that someone's building a position. So that's often just the, it's, it's, a, it's a way they try and do it to make sure they get the best price and they've got the size and heft and scale to make that happen, of yeah, course. Yeah. Buffett doesn't say, I'm going to buy $10 billion of this stock and then put a limit order in at that point. That opportunity is then dis- is gone. That's right, that's right. Here we go. One from Craig. Hi, Scott and Pagey. A question on adding to your winners. I agree with the concept, he says, but winners have a tendency to become your largest holdings. I find myself reluctant to add to already overweight positions even when the valuations look compelling. How do you approach this when you invest? Thanks for your great answers. Kind regards, Craig. Craig, I'm assuming you're talking about previous answers or you're very, very optimistic this one's going to be a good one, but we will do our best. <laughs> we'll do our best. Mate, I'll start just for fun, just to, yep. get, just to get get some words out and you can jump in. So I, Craig, I, let me wind it back. I think adding to your winners is great. I don't necessarily use that as a starting point for what I'm going to buy. I'm looking to add to or buy new positions in the biggest, the best opportunities. The idea of adding to your winners makes sense because generally speaking, companies are going up in share price over time and not every company at all. But a lot of them are doing something right. I've bought shares in Amazon and Berkshire and Corporate Travel Management and Kogan back in the day, back when the shares were going up, all at higher prices than my previous cost base. So I've absolutely added to it. Now, Coke's not a winner so far, by the way. I'm actually losing money on it after all this time. Uh, so is it, am I adding to my winners? Don't know. I was at the time, not anymore. Uh, corporate travel, Berkshire, Amazon have done really well since my initial and subsequent purchases. And there's others in between, by the way. Uh, I have plenty of losers too. I'm not saying that to, to talk about my just my winners. Uh, as I said, Kogan's not doing so well. So I don't, you know, the fact that share prices are going up tends to be because the businesses are performing well. And if they are performing well, then the businesses t- can be, hopefully are, worth the money you're paying for them. So adding to my winners in that case isn't just, hey, this is going up in share price, I'm going to buy more of it. It's just not what I do. But I understand some people do take that as a shortcut and I don't have a problem with that as long as the winners are winning business-wise as well as share price-wise and not just, you know, we all know those companies that have been, you know, big share price winners because the herd has jumped on them wrongly, frankly, and shot up and then before crashing back to earth subsequently. So just be a little bit careful, but I don't have a problem with the concept itself. To your point about overweight positions, I'm exactly the same as you. I, <laughs> I'll do it just because it's actually relevant. My apologies in advance. Everyone have a drink. Uh, <laughs> I think Kogan is one of the more compelling opportunities out there. I haven't bought shares in quite a while because it's already a large position in my portfolio. So in that context, exactly as you're suggesting, I am reluctant to add, I think it's probably if I was, was going to pick five companies, I thought were best potential value with risk. Kogan is one of the higher risk ones as well. I think it's one of the best five ideas I've got. But I haven't bought any in ages because it's already big enough. And so in that case, even though I do want to pick the best opportunities I've got, looking at a portfolio and saying, A, does it make sense to have more than that percentage? Question mark. B, I could still be completely wrong. We just finished saying that share advisor has been right six times out of 10. <laughs> you know, I can, I can think it's super compelling. I can be completely wrong about my thesis or circumstances could just conspire against me or both. And so it makes no sense to me to, Buffett uses the phrase, people gamble what they have and need for what they don't have and don't need. I don't need the Kogan position to be death or glory. I can sell everything and buy Kogan and then ride that sucker to the poor house or to the big house, or not have the big house, to the, uh, to the mansion. Uh, 
And I might be right. It might be a $20 stock. And from here, I could quadruple my money and I'll be a genius. Or it could fall to a dollar, get taken over to $1.30 by Amazon, and I've dusted two-thirds of my investment. Again, or, or anything in between. It makes zero sense to me to jeopardize my portfolio, even if I have high conviction, because of the current weighting is already too much. So I simply don't. It depends on the company though, because I've mentioned before Berkshire is my largest holding. I also mentioned before I bought some more in the last three or four months because I kind of had some money in my US dollar account and I went, it's Berkshire, it looked cheap. It was cheaper than it is now. Um, so I made some money so far. I might still lose money. Was it the single best idea I could have bought? Maybe not, even not even, no. But I like that position. I like having some money in it. I was happy to have a like, higher weighting it because it's Berkshire, right? Like where's the downside? So I did. So it's horses for courses, it's stock for stock. Generally speaking though, I have, uh, even if I think it's a winner, even if it has been a winner, portfolio weighting and portfolio risk. And look, I'm not getting any younger. I've got plenty of years left to work by the way, but you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make decisions that are death or glory outcomes. It just, it just, I haven't got enough time left in my working life to recompound that money if I'm wrong. So I'll have a position, I'll take a position. I have larger average positions than most people, by the way, in most of my large stocks. So I'm not by any stretch uh, being over-diversified. I just don't want to add more when it's already a certain size. Over to you, mate. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I, I think adding to your winners is a great move where you feel as though you don't have enough exposure already. Um, yep. if, it, if, if, it's, if it's already, it. if, it's, if it's 20% of your portfolio, and you still think it's fantastic. That's great, but it, but you know you've got twenty percent of your portfolio already bet on it. Like you're, yep. you're going to do very well with such a heavy weighting if it does go well. You'll go even better if you put more money on it. But as you say, you start tripping into this territory of well, what if it doesn't? Uh, I'm going to point to the Kelly criterion again. Look at it on Wikipedia. It's got a, it's got a formula. It's a really easy formula. And again, it's not you're not going to know what inputs to use, but play around with them because it. I think it really informs that thinking and. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It's, it, I, I, I would say this just as a counterpoint. I think the biggest regrets I've made in my investing career mm. have been too fastidious on that. Mm. So I've gone, oh, I love this company. God, I love it. Oh, man, it's now 30% of my pool. I really should sell. It's, I, can't, I can't justify such a big weighting as much as I love it. And I've actually regretted it. And we've talked before about David Gardner, the founder of The Motley Fool, right? He doesn't do it. Yes. He never does it, right? And it's going like, to look at some of the weightings and then you're like, my God, that's yep. insane. Yeah. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of merit to that kind of approach. So, I mean, it, mm. it comes mm. down to conviction a lot, you know, mm. if, if you are, just, and for good, not emotional reasons, very good, rational, objective reasons, just mm -hmm. very, very, very high conviction, not only yep. that the business will perform well, but has a very, very attractive return potential. Uh, okay, that's that's probably something that you can be a lot more flexible on. Um, mm. If not, you you have to you have to question it. So it, it's tough. I, I yeah, look. I'll keep it simple. Add to your position, absolutely. But you know, mm. if, you you can have too much of a good thing <laughs> because the yeah. future isn't certain. It just it just makes it, it makes zero sense to me to jeopardize. You know, you want the best returns possible. You want to avoid bad returns, mm. and those two things are not. Exactly the same thing all the time. Yeah, uh, it just makes no sense to me. I, you know, I, yeah. I, had I had I I would I would have my co position would be twice the size it is now, in percentage terms and obviously dollars by definition. If I didn't care about the weighting, but mm -hmm. I do, and I could be wrong. And, and humility is like the number one thing for it. I. I would I will I will walk away from a really really high quality analyst, a great researcher, who doesn't have the temperament to help me invest better. Because, and Buffett said before, and we've mentioned Buffett a million times in the last two episodes, he said, if you've got an IQ above, I think it's 120, he says, just for fun, then sell something to somebody else. You don't need to be smarter in investing because at the end of the day, temperament will drive, I think, an outsized proportion of your returns. It's still, even though behavioral economics is now 20, 25 years old, it still doesn't get enough coverage. I, I mention as often as I can, I know some of our listeners have said, thanks for doing that. Others probably hate it. I don't, well, as I said, I don't care. I do care. But uh, I'm going to keep doing it because temperament and, and the ability to control your emotions, fear, greed, panic, everything else is probably going to have a, a bigger impact on your investment life, maybe even than your analysis and certainly a bigger impact than you probably know and most people know. Um, most of the big mistakes are made by overconfidence, made by hubris, made by all that sort of stuff. Um, smart people who know they're smart and forget that they are, you know, 
fallible human characters at the same time. And the market is weird. Um, just humility, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Humility. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, I just add on that, like, as you said, like, if, 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 if the comp like use Kogan as an example, okay. You, you, yes, it's high conviction idea, but for you, you've you've mm. got enough. Yeah. Like, well, if it goes well, <laughs> you've got enough, right? Like, like that's, <laughs> yeah, that's that, right. let's keep that in perspective here. So we're not talking about yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not a, it's not about failing to add more is going to mm-hmm. lead to a huge amount of regret if if you are right because because you've still got as by definition um, exactly. a very adequate exposure. So yeah. I mean, this is this is what I'm crazy about you know. We, let's not let's not go down this particular rabbit mm, hole. But this mm, is where I scratch my head with the Bitcoin Max. He's like, oh, everything Bitcoin. Like, look, I'm on your side. I have, I, I agree yeah. that there's something interesting here. But 100. percent Oh my mm-hmm. gosh! Like, if that's mm-hmm. it's not a sure bet. Far, 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 far from it. Like, it is. You're you're gonna you're either gonna be the the biggest hero in the world or a big fat zero. And that's it's it's kind of it, it, it no seems sense. crazy. It seems makes crazy. No sense. Mate, last one to finish up with. Quick one from Dave. We won't spend too long on it, but it kind of goes into a question we had before. Hi, in a recent episode, you were talking about the foolishness, small f, foolishness, of the market rising or falling by 1.8% in a day. Is it mainly retail or institutional money causing this volatility? Cheers, Dave. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes, I you sometimes A's. I'm hoping you would. <laughs> sometimes A, sometimes B. Yeah. Um, depends on the stock. GameStop was all retail, you know, yeah. for a bit there. Yeah. Uh, At a market level, mate, I'd have to say I'm reasonably sure it must be institutional money because retail money more tends to be it. much stickier. Yeah, there's more of it. We don't trend, retail traders don't trade as frequently. Yeah, and so the, and the average size multiplied by the by the trading frequency just as you say probably means there's less of it. Um, I saw a stat during the I think you might have told me actually during the GFC something like ninety percent of shares weren't traded mm. <laughs> of the, the actual holdings. Right, mm. the, the other ten were over traded like over and over and over and over, and over again. By day traders or by um, by institutions, fund managers getting in and out of whatever they're doing. Mm. Uh, Dave, I would I would suspect it's institutional. I would suspect with a reasonable degree of confidence, institutional money. Uh, by the way, that means probably your super fund or someone else's super fund. So be careful with the institutions aren't aren't nameless, faceless nobodies that you know exist in some bond esque super world. They're often just representing the funds that we hold in one or more investment structures. So it's mm. it might be institutional money. But it's probably our money, or at least uh, your neighbor's money, if you've got an SMSF or something else. So, yeah, when you say causing the volatility, by the way, that's uh, this is kind of a bit esoteric. But just quickly, that doesn't cause the volatility. The, the volatility is the result. And I know that feels like I'm kind of mincing words here. Um, but if they simply say, "Well, yesterday I bought Woolly shares at two dollars. Today I'm going to buy them at a dollar eighty. Now those are silly numbers. It's forty bucks a share. But you get the idea. Uh, they're not. You know, is that causing volatility? Kind of, I suppose, at one level. The other level, it's just it's an, it's just the result of what prices people are prepared to pay. Um, so it's causing it to some degree. Uh, but I just want to I just want to kind of be a little bit clear. They're not saying uh, let let's pay more, let's pay less, let's pay more, let's pay less day in day out as a way of kind of you know causing that volatility. They're simply just making decisions on what they think they want to be and what what shares they want to hold. That, and, and that kind of that and that uh, that is the that's the core of it, right? So yeah. so I think it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, you you ponder these things when you come across mm-hmm. like oh I wonder where it is, and and so I, yeah. I get the question. But at the same time, it's kind of like the only thing that matters is is not the is not the particular answer, but is mm-hmm. is the price that I'm able to transact at of interest to me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. For okay. whatever, I, is it a bot? Is it an institution? Yeah. Yeah. Is it Warren Buffett? <laughs> or is it a bunch of idiots on Reddit? Right, right, right. It's fungible. Like a sh- yeah. one share of my share of, of, of XYZ is equal to your share of XYZ. Yeah. <laughs> fungible is a very now term, isn't it? Um, oh, I'm, not going, I'm not going to, but it is. Uh, in, in terms of the definition of the word, it is. And so whether- It existed before the before these bloody NFTs. pictures, by the way, just yeah, quietly. There, there was a thing called fungible. It was a real word. I like the word. <laughs> they've they've ruined it for me, but there you go. <laughs> but, but, but shares are fungible. Yeah. So I don't, when I'm buying shares or selling shares, I don't, yeah. I, you know- I don't care where they're from. I don't yep. care because w- whether it's it's some seventeen-year-old in his mum's basement or it's the biggest hedge fund manager in the world, they're, they're, yeah. I'll take them if I want the shares. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the well, price makes sense for one dollar. It makes you one share richer or one one share better off, and they got one less share. But you know, they all, all that matters what you own after the transaction, which is one share of X Y Z. I think it's helpful too to remember that the, that these prices, like on aggregate, that there are so many participants. And everyone's in their own unique situation. Mm. Someone will be selling their BHP shares yeah, today because exactly. they exactly. want to buy a boat. It means nothing on on, the, on their perspective on the company. Yep. Someone's yep. selling it because they just got into a bunch of trouble and they're having to liquidate stuff. Someone's selling it because they hate the business. Someone's selling it because they're reweighting a portfolio. 
Someone's selling it because they've just found an idea that they think is a little bit better. Like there's a hundred reasons to sell and a lot of them have nothing to do with that particular person's <laughs> view on the stock. Yeah. And, and That's also true, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. It, it, absolutely zero. Yeah. They might actually – I've sold yeah. shares even not that long ago in companies that I love. But, you know, personal um, situation, I, I need some cash or I want to buy something. You know, it's, so you, you can read into it too mm-hmm. much, mm-hmm. I, I, I think, uh, on, on, on all of that. The, the, and then okay. even, if, even if you assume that they do hate the stock and that's why they're selling – well, they love it because that's why they're buying. Well, are they right? Mm. <laughs> so you get you send yourself mad trying to guess the motivations <laughs> right. of all of these participants. You know, yeah. so yeah. you know, for me, I send, I send the temptation to want to know. By the way, oh, yeah, totally. your view that's not very useful. Is, 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 whoever it is, am I interested? Yeah. You know, I, I, that's the great thing about the markets. It's purely voluntary. Mm-hmm. I can walk up and I can say nut nah, and slam the door in their face. And go, yes, please. Let's do a deal. It's it's mm. completely voluntary, and I can ignore it for most of the time. And with that, we're done. Nice. Go and focus on the good stuff, Phil. Focus on the businesses. Focus on their creation of value or otherwise. And if the shares are attractive, buy them. If they're not, don't. But try and avoid the sideshows if you can. And that's volatility. <laughs> that's institutional versus retail. That's whatever's going on. As hard as it is. That is literally the main game. And if you don't, if you don't get that, we will repeat the same thing a hundred times <laughs> over the next hundred weeks. <laughs> we, at, some, at some point, we're going to get an AI just to chop up the Q and A through the last, you know, five years, and just spit it back out again as new episodes. It'd be great. And I'll never work another day in our lives. Mm. But we will work next Friday. Will you rejoin me, mate? Absolutely. All right. I said I'd share the socials. We've got a little bit over time. You know how to find us. Really quickly, info at fool.com.au if you've got a question. Look us up on Twitter at Sage underscore Simeon, at Strawman Invest, at TMF Scott P, or at The Motley Fool AU. Actually, I will do one more, mate, only because I'm being spammed on Facebook by scammy uh copied profiles, people trying to do Bitcoin scams. Facebook people sucks. who listen to this podcast know by now mm. uh, that I'm not going to be involved in any Bitcoin giveaways. Uh, but if you are looking for me on on, on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash Money. That is my profile page. That is the my professional page. You'll find me there. If you get any other messages from people who look like, they steal photos. Like they pretend that like steal the, fo- the cover photo, the profile photo and say, hey, I'm giving away Bitcoin. Click it. Like, just, you know, you know I'm not There is no that. greater troll. There is no greater online troll than pretending to be Scott Phillips selling Bitcoin. Like that is <laughs> just hopefully no one gets anyway. But yeah, so don't don't. I was going to say just look for me on Facebook. You can do that, but make sure you get in the real me. So just go to facebook.com/slash Scott Phillips Money. All right, mate. That's it for today. We'll see you Friday. Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.